Hello, everyone, and welcome to Voices for Suicide Prevention, brought to you by the Ohio Suicide Prevention Foundation. As we like to say, our conversations here are real talk, real honest, real life. I'm your host, Scott Light. October is National Depression and Mental Health Screening Month. Our two guests today make a difference in their respective careers every day when it comes to suicide prevention, and they're also willing to share their own life stories and their own lived experiences. Cassie Martindell is the Communications Director for the Ohio Suicide Prevention Foundation, and Bailey Fulweiler is a licensed social worker and currently statewide mental health first aid program manager for Mental Health America of Ohio. Welcome to you both. Thank you. I want to begin with the calendar, so to speak. As I mentioned, October is National Depression and Mental Health Screening Month. So as we're wrapping up this month, I also want to go back a little bit and mention this. October 10th was World Mental Health Day. And this year's theme was this, mental health in an unequal world. To both of you, I'd like to begin. How does that phrase speak to both of you? Bailey, would you start us off? Yeah, I'd love to. I'm really glad that was the theme because as clinicians, we always want to make sure that we're not helping clients adjust to oppression and discrimination. And so we know that racism, homophobia, transphobia, um, all these different types of challenges that our community members face are going to impact their mental well-being. And so we want to support people individually with what's in their control and also address systemic barriers to both services and to wellness. Yeah, you know, to me, that just means the cost of behavioral health services. Um, You know, I've often had to make the decision about whether or not I can afford therapy throughout my life. And that has made it exceptionally difficult to, you know, on my path to healing and recovery. Uh, You know, anybody who's on Medicaid, Medicare, who's uninsured or underinsured, that cost is prohibitive. Um, You know, mental illness can impact anyone, whether you're rich or you're poor. um, But healing and recovery is not easily afforded by everyone. We're going to talk a lot about that, the pervasiveness of it. And of course, we're going to talk about healing and recovery here in our next few minutes together. Let's also begin this episode with a couple of baselines of data. One in five U.S. adults experience mental illness each year. One in six U.S. youth ages 6 to 17 experience a mental health disorder each year. I've talked to experts not only on this podcast series, but at other times who believe that those statistics are likely higher and maybe considerably higher because of stigma still surrounding mental health. Cassie, do you think so? Absolutely. It's definitely underreported. Um, And that could be because people are afraid or ashamed to seek help, but it could also be because they just don't have the tools to recognize when they might actually be experiencing mental illness. Um, you know, I did not get help as soon as I probably should have just because I was afraid. Uh, I was afraid to go to therapy. I thought it would change me. I was afraid of medication and that I also had a lot of self stigma. And I felt like if I went to therapy, that that meant that I was weak or Mm -hmm. broken in some way. Um, that's self stigma. It was really damaging to me for many years. It prevented me from telling anyone and That's why we say that people often are suffering in silence and why those numbers, I think, are a lot lower than they actually are. Mm -hmm. And therapy is such a sign of strength. I mean, it just is. We just should be so squawky about it, so loud about it, right? I know for my own experience that in youth, it's remarkably underreported. A lot of mental illness in our youth and our young adults presents as behaviors And we treat it behaviorally instead of looking at the root cause of why children are suffering. I also know 
What Cassie said is so true is that we get people in crisis. We get people when they're at the end of their rope. And so there's all these people that are suffering but are in status quo. They're able to somehow stay afloat enough that it presents outwardly that they're moving through their life. And so we get people far too late um, in the game when they're in crisis. So I completely agree with what Cassie said that what we see is who finally got to a breaking point. Mm -hmm. We also don't share that there are a lot of resources to make mental health more accessible, to make counseling more accessible. And that's something that I hope we dig into is that there is a lot of options out there for people to get treatment that's the best fit for them, whether that's cost or type or technique. Um, And a clinician, that's a good fit for them. So I really hope that we get louder about what resources are available and that help is out there. Even if there are wait lists, we can still support people while they're waiting for the best fit. I want to zero in on depression in a couple of ways here with both of you. Again, on the research side, we know depression affects somewhere between 17 to 20 million Americans. More women are affected than men. Depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide and a leading cause of suicide too. Would you both mind sharing your lived experiences here? I would say that my experience started from a very young age uh, with anxiety and depression. Um, I isolated myself a lot to try to process the world. I was often overwhelmed by social situations and expectations put on me. Um, It felt like I was struggling with something that most of the other kids weren't. And um, as I got older, those expectations grew and I had less space to process Uh, That caused a lot of anxiety, and it just skyrocketed, um, and it turned into a full-blown panic disorder. I was having, you know, two to three anxiety or panic attacks a week, sometimes a day, um, and each one took more out of me. Um, I was severely depressed by the time I was 17, and I was dealing with a lot of difficult things going on in my life. I had sick family members. I had lost my grandparents. I was dealing with really difficult bullying, and I responded to those situations by being the one that didn't need anything. So I piled so many expectations on myself with school and sports and taking care of everyone. And I really started to feel all the weight of it. Um, I began self-harming and I was suicidal. Uh, You know, there were a lot of points where I just wished I could just float away. You know, I I just wanted to die. You know, I wrote notes more than once and I just felt very close to death. Um, And then it was in the summer after graduation from high school that I lost a friend to suicide and that changed my mindset significantly. However, I still didn't get help until junior year of college. Um, I'm really grateful that I mustered through, you know, until I could get help, but it's been a very long journey. It's definitely not over. Um, In each trial that I have with mental illness, I feel like I learn a little bit more. I grow more and I become a little more tethered to the world. Now that you're able to look back, when did the anxiety start becoming overwhelming? Would that have been elementary school, middle school, before high school? You know, anxiety has kind of always been with me. Uh, it's with know, all of us. I, I'm it's not entirely sure if that was like, you know, genetic or not. It, it's really hard to say. I think that, uh, you know, the early 2000s were a wild time. <laughs> the 90s were a wild time. So um, I don't know. I, I couldn't tell you when I really felt like what I was experiencing was anxiety specifically. Bailey, what about your lived experience? Yeah, I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder in 2018, but um, I think depression has been around much longer. If I look back and see things 
with clearer eyes. Um, 2018 is when I started therapy and was a huge, huge blessing in my life. But um, depression was something I resisted even though I knew that I was experiencing it because I was known for being a really happy, affectionate caregiver. And people came to me to lean on me for support and for love and guidance. Um, You know, it's part of why I'm a social worker now. And I didn't want anyone to not see me in that light. It's what, it made me feel important. And I felt like if I got diagnosed or if I was aware of the depression that somehow that would change and I wouldn't be that person that people leaned on anymore. And that was such a huge part of my social identity. Mm. Um, Now I think depression makes me a better social worker. When I come into a depressive episode, it just feels like an old friend visiting me and I know how to slow down and the people in my life know, you know, how to be with my depression. But it was something, it was a huge barrier teaching my loved ones that, I still wanted to have a relationship with them when I was in a depressive episode. And these were the things that I needed, how to be my own advocate, to have those relationships and trust that people would accommodate my needs and be there for me. Cassie, when you mentioned your junior year of college, it was that year for me as well. Now, for me, that was also 30-some years ago. But, you know, I, I can remember, I remember it vividly. That was my first experience with a licensed therapist and you're 20 years old and you're going well I always knew psychiatrists and psychologists were around why didn't I do this before very very similar experience uh as far as junior year being the year it's very interesting that that was the same year for both of us because I do feel like you know your brain's a lot less mushy and you're really <laughs> entering your adulthood and you're really thinking about your life and uh i think that 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 weighs on all of us at that point right up to that point it's just a mad rush to grow up what worked for both of you obviously therapy did medications help what what else helped in in your journeys in your respective journeys here I had a therapist that we did acceptance and commitment therapy, which I loved um, because it beautifully met my trauma history, too. And we used animal-assisted therapy, so we had um, therapy animals that were in um, the room with us when we were doing therapy, and then they recommended volunteering at an equine therapy barn because um, the human-animal bond was really important to me, but I was in a point in my life with housing and finances where I didn't have a lot of agency to invite an animal into my family. So that has been huge, and I've continued to volunteer with animal groups just because that human-animal bond is so therapeutic. Um, and then I started practicing yoga, and now I teach trauma-informed yoga. And what I loved about therapy And the yoga practices were, they were skills that nobody could take away from you. A lot of our coping skills are, you know, dependent on cars or money or other people. And learning those skills that were just internal to me that I carry with me everywhere was really revolutionary. And that, like, I always had things that I could stand on or that I could lean on when I needed them. Mine's pretty similar, too. I I had cognitive behavioral therapy in college. Counseling was free. Uh, after graduation, it was not. That was very difficult. It was very difficult to afford therapy after college, and it and it continues to be difficult. Um, 
So I would say it also is those learned skills that includes how I structure my life, um, those kind of lifestyle changes that I had to put in place and that I continue to have to reevaluate based off of my circumstances. Um, you know, I wish I could say that I was uh, fully recovered and that I don't have any more symptoms because it has been 10 years. Um, you know, and sometimes I will, I'll go six months without any symptoms and it's wonderful. That's a wonderful time. But the truth is that it comes back in an instant if I don't take care of myself. Um, so, you know, in April of this year, I actually hit the lowest point that I had hit in the past 10 years. I was very, very depressed. Um, I honestly didn't think it was possible. I was very surprised at how dark it got, how quickly, um, you know, I have a good life. I got a good home. I'm married. I got two cute dogs and chickens and I finished writing my first book, um, last year. So, I mean, I was in total bliss at the beginning of this year. Um, and I decided to pursue publishing that book and that meant reaching out to agents, which inevitably meant rejection. Um, and I thought, you know, I got this. If I just, you know, support myself, if I let everyone know that this is going to be a challenge, if I structure my life, if I build into that structure, all that goodness, you know, coffee dates with friends and, you know, the kinds of things that give me peace and soothe me, then I can get through this. Um, it didn't work out like that. You know, I, uh, I was pushing myself too much, too fast, and I was putting too many expectations on myself and it came crashing down. I lost touch with reality. I forgot all that goodness. And by April, I was definitely spiraling. Um, again, I felt all those feelings of just like wanting to float away. <laughs> and, um, I knew it wasn't okay. Like I knew at this point in my life with everything that I've learned that, those kinds of thoughts are not healthy and that I had to get out of that headspace. I had to get help. So I went to my doctor. I took time off work. I called everyone in my support system. Everyone was so shocked. <laughs> they were just like, what? You seem totally fine. But I also was shocked. I couldn't believe I had found myself in this situation and how quickly it had happened. Um, I'm doing much better now. Um, you know, it's especially important to look at my workload I'm finding at this stage mm -hmm. in my life. So I'm taking that more seriously than ever before. I'm not betting on my work ethic. I'm not betting that I'll have energy to take something on. Yes, I am an enthusiastic and energetic person, but that doesn't mean that I can count on that. I've learned that, that, you know, instead I try to say now, I know I can do this, but I also know I don't have to. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really made me realize that no one is immune to crisis. Even those of us who work in mental health, people are often like, wow, you got that done so fast. Mm -hmm. Or you're such a good writer. Um, you're so creative. You're so enthusiastic. Um, I get a lot of opportunities <laughs> because of that, you know, because of my personality in that way. Um, so it's, it's often a conundrum yeah you know people yeah. are often like they, well of course she can do this because you know she's done it before um and i am also a yes person uh i'm a people pleaser mm -hmm. i don't want to let anybody down um so i totally feel that i'm sitting with what cassie just shared because cassie and i were co-workers when she was going through that really bleak point i'm a trained clinician i have lived experience with depression and i had no idea mm. And something from what you both said that I've been thinking about is we hide it so phenomenally well. We always talk about the warning signs and how to look out for each other. But the truth is, 
so many of us hide our mental illnesses beautifully in, you know, the most, you know, antithetical way. And it's hard to get to the root of what someone's feeling when you say, how are you doing? And they say, good. And what, what does good mean? Like, what are better questions that we can ask each other? How are you sleeping? How are you eating? What's your social life like? Because isolation is, when you were talking about, I wish I had gotten care sooner, like, that's an isolation from a part of ourselves. We're isolating that, and we're not sharing it. And when you share that you're suffering, there is the risk of stigma and people not understanding, but there's so many people that are going to immediately get it. We know that one in five adults, one in six youth, probably more. And so somebody in the room is going to say, I have been in a similar situation. Every person is unique, but they're going to get it and they're going to connect with you. And then that isolation is broken Mm -hmm. and that shame dissolves a little bit because shame just breathes when it's hidden, when things are secret. So, you know, Cassie was kind and brave enough to share with us in April what she was experiencing. And I've never felt closer to Cassie as a friend, as a colleague, that we have that shared experience and that we can talk about it and we can use it in our relationship and our work and then take care of each other and ourselves. Let me ask you both about COVID in this respect. We know that traumatic events lead to depression. And although most restrictions have have been lifted, we are still dealing with the after effects of a worldwide pandemic. Millions of people died. Millions more were really sick. Our jobs changed. Our work culture changed. COVID became a, my goodness, it became a political cudgel even. That list goes on. How did COVID affect both of you? Bailey and I have talked about this before. We both really loved the pandemic, especially at the beginning. It was just like, finally, like government sanctioned rest. It was great. Um, So, uh, you know, I think that that doesn't mean that we didn't experience challenges or understand what was happening in the world. But on a personal level, I definitely felt like this is my time to really grow uh, mm-hmm. in so many profound ways. And like I said, I did finish that book. That was a lifelong goal. I've been working on that for eight years. So that was a pretty big deal for me. Um, yeah, I grew in a whole lot of ways. And I think the hardest part for me was re-entering the mm-hmm. world. And it, it still continues to be. It was not easy. I found myself isolating a lot longer than most other people. Um, and that's a very personal decision that we've all had to make about what is comfortable Uh, knowing that the world still isn't exactly safe to re-enter. My family, I have a lot of close family members who are immunocompromised. um, And so it feels like an ethical challenge every day that I leave the house. Um, I would say more broadly that uh, everybody's been impacted by the pandemic in some way or another, whether that's morally or financially or socially And we've seen mental illness rates skyrocket. Um, We're seeing more people reaching out for help than ever before, which is great. But at the same time, uh, we're also experiencing a shortage of mental health care workers. So people are having to find alternative means of support. And that's why we do what we do at MHA Ohio and OSPF Matters. It's those organizations that are preventing and addressing mental illness across the state. My wife said something similar. She, She just felt like her world slowed down during the pandemic and she was grateful for that i'm feeling a lot of kinship towards your wife um i explain depression as you know everything slows down for me like i i'm eeyore 
you know, in the most lovable sense. (laughs) And things sped up very quickly. And we know that, you know, humans adjust to things really beautifully, but rapid change is hard. And so I think a lot of people are where you are, Cassie, where um, there's a lot of social activities, there's mass crowding at events, we're deciding if we want to be in the office or at home. It's a huge stressor. We're changing a lot very quickly. And that when we talk about trauma and everybody's unique and what is traumatic for them, but a lot of times we talk about too much, too quickly, um, not in our control. And so to anyone who's feeling overwhelmed by the changes, whether they're good or bad, because it can be a great change and still overwhelm you, just know that you're not alone and there's a lot of support that we have for people that are feeling overwhelmed with this transition or trying to figure out how they want to connect with the world because we want to connect with nature, we want to connect with other people, we want to connect with animals, we want to connect with our bodies through movement and that might be all changing for you and that's why I think therapy is so beautiful because even if you're not experiencing a diagnosable mental illness, you might be struggling with these transitions and you deserve support and care as you navigate them. We do know that depression is pervasive, we talked about that, but Here's what else we know, and and both of you have alluded to this. It is highly treatable. So, Bailey, with that as kind of a a tee up here, can you share more about your work as a trained social worker and your ecological uh, grief counseling program? What I love about the mental health field is there's something for everyone. And so there's so many treatments, and our treatments get better all the time. So, you know, a lot of my veterans that I work with do the equine therapy because sitting down doesn't work for them. You know, having the animal there is hugely beneficial. We know that there are nature-based therapies and incorporating the human nature bond into therapy can be really therapeutic for people. Uh, we have EMDR, so we're getting better at treating trauma. We have acceptance and commitment therapy, what I did, which is great for trauma and depression. There's so many ways that we can find the best fit for someone. And so that's why I love the work we do at MHA Ohio, because I feel like a matchmaker. I'm learning about you and what's important to you and what would make you feel most comfortable in a therapeutic relationship, and then connecting you to the best fit as it's available. And for some people, the best fit is support groups. I loved having a support group of other depressed people who just spoke my language and got it. I love doing the trauma-informed yoga for women in halfway houses, because We all get it. We all have lived experience with sexual assault, and we're all learning what it's like to be in our bodies and have relationships with them. So there's just an abundance of options. And so if you've gone to a therapist or you've done a type of therapy and it wasn't the best fit, there are other options out there. And I want to acknowledge that it's exhausting starting over with a new therapist. It's exhausting finding that. And that's why you can lean on people like our team at MHA Ohio to do some of that work with you so that you're not you're not doing it alone because likely if you're looking for help you're already kind of hitting a hard spot and we want to be there with you when you're in your hard spot. Cassie, similarly to you, what what therapies, treatments, research, what's out there that you're watching with that same sense of optimism where you're like, "Hey, you know what? Maybe this could be a, a real difference maker for people." I still have so much to explore in the realm of therapy. Uh, but I am really excited to see so many people stepping up to learn. Uh, you know, we have the mental health first aid training, as we mentioned, we also have QPR question, persuade and refer, uh, both of those programs help people identify when someone is in crisis and help them get the support that they need. Um, you know, the more people who take the time to educate themselves, the more likely it is that we will prevent suicide. 
Um, it's really a domino effect, too, with those of us who are sharing our story. The more people who share their story, the more conversations that we have, the more likely you are to reach those people who are struggling to open up. I, I plan to have as many of those conversations as possible. Well, as we start to wrap this conversation, let me come back to where we started, talking about October being National Depression and Mental Health Screening Month. You're both such pros, so I want to end with a question this way. If you had a friend or a family member who you thought needed some help, how would you start that conversation? I like to start by showing people that I can be with them to have a hard conversation. Like we said, people hide their mental illness really skillfully. And so the more I can show them that I can hold and handle whatever they share with me, the more likely they are to open up and then we can talk about what would be the best fit moving forward. So asking those more specific questions, being able to share my own experience and what's been working for me. And so if somebody I see is suffering, I go to those places of how have you been sleeping? What are you, like, how have you been eating? How is your social life? And then as I get those answers, I might come together and say, it sounds like you're suffering a little bit. I just want to know, you know, do you want to talk about it with me? Do you want to talk about it with a trained professional? And what support can I offer you to know that you don't have to continue suffering by yourself? 100% agree with Bailey. That's how you do it. Um, And, you know, the problem is that sometimes people just aren't ready. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there is a little bit of action on your part to have that patience and that grace to keep having those conversations when somebody is struggling uh, and to understand that uh, that decision to get support, to get help has to come from them. You just can't take it personally (laughs) if they don't listen to you the first time. Uh, You have to keep coming back. You have to keep showing up. Where can people go for more resources? If someone would like to be screened for depression, anxiety, or other common mental health um, diagnoses, they can call any Mental Health of America affiliate. We can do online or over-the-phone screening, and from there, connect you with resources. And I just really want to reiterate with this entire conversation that depression, mental illness, going unchecked is dangerous. That there is an end result here that we don't talk about. There's a lot of stigma around weakness. Um and just taboo with mental illness in general. But if it goes unchecked, suicide is a much more likely possibility. So that's what OSPF does, that we, we kind of come in at that point and we work with families uh, who have experienced a loss or who have attempted suicide. And um, we try to be there for them in every way possible. We're advocating at the State House. We're doing so much right now. I encourage you to check us out. Cassie, Bailey, thank you both for being here today. We also say to our listeners, thank you, because if you're listening to this, you are breaking those stigmas that our guests talked about today. You're breaking those barriers, and you definitely care about mental health and about saving lives. This is Voices for Suicide Prevention, brought to you by the Ohio Suicide Prevention Foundation.